Women Bridging the Gap is a freewheeling conversation co-hosted by Lenya Wilson and myself, Alexandra Detalia. Listen to our conversations while we discuss race and womanhood at the hearth level. We began this podcast in response to the murder of George Floyd, Amy Cooper's weaponization of her white femininity, and the subsequent uprising. We really believe that honesty, openness, and love can bridge the gap between people of color and white people. So let's just call it what it is. What do Black women need to say to white women? What do we all face together? What do we need to own? Where and how do we show compassion? How do we move forward together? We want you to be in on our conversation and help us move forward one conversation at a time. I'm Lenya. I'm a fashion stylist and image consultant. I'm also a competitive power lifter. I spent a very long time living outside of the United States, and now I am back living the L.A. life. I'm Alexandra. I'm a writer, professor, traveler, and all-around polymath. Hey, Lenya. Good morning. Do you have your tea? Good morning. Yes, I do. All right. Well, I have coffee. I actually had Eric make me coffee because I was running behind. And today's question that we've already sort of talked about, but it's how does the beauty ideal, even the one that changes over time, create an abyss between white women, women of color and black women? And how do we connect from that? And so, you know, I wrote you a bunch of prompts to sort of get us going in conversation. But this is something that you and I have been talking about for as long as we've known one another. I think it's one of the first things we've ever talked about. I know. And like, why, why was that true? We met at CrossFit all those years ago. And I mean, was it because we were both trying to like work on ourselves in middle age that it came up? Like, how did how'd that come up? You know, I don't even remember. I think it was like we were the two oldest ladies in that group. And I think it was all these like young, leggy blondes. And you're like, why are you? I don't know. It was just a weird... <laughs> Right. I was like, why are you even bothering? If I Yeah. And then, you- but then, you know, you say that and you go, why are you even bothering? And then you remember, you know, like, well, women want to be strong too. Right. You know? So, and like, I want to applaud women who want to be strong. But I think at that time I had that stupid misconception of everybody just wanting to be skinny. Yeah. That actually is like what I think about all the time, because the thing that I applaud today's younger women with that, that I, we, I don't think either of us grew up with was that there is more of a body positive acceptance Mm. and there is more power in being strong and not just skinny. Because like, when I think about it as a kid, like what were your first concepts of beauty? I couldn't really tell you because I, I don't think, I think I told you this, but my parents or my father specifically did not allow me to have white dolls. Right. So I didn't see, I didn't have that same problem that I know a lot of other black girls growing up or girls of color had with, you know, not seeing myself represented other than maybe on TV, which I really wasn't allowed a lot. And, you know, come on, in 1970 something, TV wasn't everything like it is now. Like it's not an all day thing. So I didn't, I didn't really see that. And I was always surrounded by my black cousins and my African-American family. Very rarely did I actually see my Hispanic family. So again, I always had these sort of like I had black women in my life all the time. So I don't think I had that same problem that a lot of black girls have. And remind me, I mean, it's partly for our listeners, like where you grew up in the Bronx, 
Yes. I, well, I started out in the Bronx and then my family moved to Spanish Harlem when I was eight. And so, I mean, what were your, what were your schools like? Were there white kids at school or you were? Very rare. In in kindergarten and first grade, yes, there were, because I went to a school that had like a part of this like little Italy section in Spanish Harlem there. So there were their kids going there. Right. And so I did have some white classmates, but I don't remember who they were. I remember my teacher being white. She ended up being my mom's best friend for the rest of their lives. Right. So they, you know, until, I don't know, until they both, my mom stopped remembering who she was, but yeah, like, so Miss Fishbane was amazing, but I, I mean, I don't remember, it's really hard to remember that time, but I don't, I don't re, like, I just don't remember seeing that many uh, white people period. Now, when I went to school from second grade to sixth grade, no white children in my class, it was all black, Hispanic, a couple of Asian children, um, some Chinese, some Japanese. And I don't know at that time, I wouldn't have been as savvy of knowing, you know, that was it. I remember my best friend being Wei Fang, Chinese girl, up until she told me she couldn't be my friend anymore because I was black in third grade. I think I cried on that one for a year, but you know, that was it. Right. So I never had that problem. It wasn't until like high school that I started to see that there was this other, like there's the, the real beauty ideal is not me. All right. Well, wait a minute. Let's actually just parse that. Like, cause that's what's interesting to me is real. So, you know, but I grew up, I was the only white girl in my class up until fourth grade. Cause, wow. um, so my dad was president of the board of education of orange, New Jersey. And we were, we had moved from Newark and we wanted to stay in this town and we were very engaged in staying in this town. And I, it just felt natural for me to be, but I was the minority for sure. And I did feel what was interesting is I kind of had in the beginning an opposite experience that I think most white people have is that my beauty ideal was Vicki Moore. I'm Facebook friends with her still, but she was the most beautiful girl, like in the third grade. I loved her so much. And she used to wear, remember those, um, the ponytail holders with the big bubble gum. Yes. (laughs) Where she had like four or five different ponytail things with the big bubble gum. And she was just so cute. And I wanted to look like her so bad. And I would tell my mom to take my hair. I was like, can't you just put it in four different ways? Like, why won't my hair do that? Like, I was so <laughs> upset. But then as soon as we moved to, to Maplewood, even though my high school was extremely diverse, my elementary school, I think, completely white. Like, I, I can't think of a Black person when we, when we moved to Maplewood. And... The only thing I remember is too, is like no one cursed. I learned all the curse words my first day in the all white school. And I thought everyone was really pasty. Like it was this idea of like, everybody is pasty, but then very quickly it, I like, I kind of hate to say it. Like I kind of got in line. Do you know what I mean? Like I was back into line and I was like, by the end, by fifth grade, I wanted to be it became more about the body than about something else. Like, and part of that might be aging, but very quickly it was like long legs, skinny, blonde, blue eyed was the ideal. And like, and I knew I didn't look like that. You know, like I also like, if 
listeners, I'm, I have dark hair, brown eyes. I look very Italian, but again, like the black concept of beauty or whatever just went out the window. And I like, I, since I'm white, I didn't even have to think about it. You know what I mean? I just yeah. moved past it. But what, when you think about real, like what, that's interesting to me. Like what, how did that come out as that was the real one and what you had wasn't real. So even, so like I said, at home, even the magazines were jet essence, right? So I didn't, I just didn't notice that the rest of the world was Vogue, in style, you know, Marie Claire. And so I just didn't know. Like, and then you kind of go to high school and it's a mixed school in Midtown New York, you know? Right. And I was like, Oh, you know, and then you start walking by the newsstands and you're paying attention and you're, and you're only seeing these, you know, Grace Coddington looking women and, um, Twiggy and all of that. But, you know, but the being white, blonde and the eyes, the colored eyes. Right. So that's when all these like black girls in like, you know, their, uh, late teens, early twenties started wearing the blue contacts and the light brown contacts and everything like that. I think I even had light brown contacts for like a minute. So light brown. So I was like hazel. Well, I, you know, the truth is, it's like, I have that too. I remember when, you know, everybody was obsessed in my group of friends who were obsessed, uh, with lady die. Uh, uh, yeah. And I just remember everybody looking in magazines and I would look and it was, I, my mother got Vogue. And so I would look at Vogue and of course, like I saw even again, that beauty ideal, what's interesting to me is the real beauty ideal is to just always sell other. I mean, it feels like it for you, the gap was huge, right? Yes. And for me, the gap wasn't as much, but it was still... I still didn't see me really because I just identified differences. I noticed that nobody looked ethnic at all and it's different now. And then I just, I noticed that the prettiest brunettes all had blue or green eyes. Yes. They did not have brown eyes. So I, my friend, uh, Suzanne, she actually wore green contacts for years, like the bright green emerald green contacts. And I, my parents, they were like, accept who you are. And And they were they were not, it's funny. They would accept who you are. You're just not beautiful. You're something else. Like they weren't mean, but they were just like very, they were truth tellers. They're like, you're not going to be a model. So get over it and move on to something else. And like, they didn't even want me to get contacts. Wow. You know, in ninth grade, I had to write an essay on why getting contacts was not solely a vain decision. Of course I was meant to go to law school. I mean, I was just driven to it. But in that idea, like I do think it affects self-esteem. I think high school is really key for women and self-esteem. And so, I mean, how did you wear your hair in high school? I mean, were you ironing? Were you like styling? Yeah, or were you that's, natural? Okay. So maybe, so hair is an issue for me from early on because my mother is Hispanic and didn't know how to do my hair. So my cousins used to have to come in and do my hair. And I would have like braids and stuff like, you know, like normal black girls. I, and then there was a time when my mom started letting me get my hair ironed by my aunt. And then that was the flat iron, you know, the hot comb. Not the right. flat iron. There was no flat iron. Hot comb. And so I had the hot comb for years and years and years. And I think by the time we got to high school, my natural hair was fairly long and harder to manage for my mother and for me. So that's when I started getting, you know, like, braids, like, um, you know, what you would call 
individuals. So it was just like lots of little braids that you could put in different kind of different kind of styles. And so I would have those almost all the time. So it was easier to manage my hair. Well, the thing is, is like, so when was the first time that you were around a majority white group and had to sort of navigate beauty in that way? Probably just after high school, you know, you get your first job. Yeah. And that was, that was, I was like, oh, okay. So you can't get a job with your hair and braids. So, you know, you straight, and that's when I started perming my hair with chemicals. Wow. Yeah. And that was like a bad decision. Maybe halfway, like maybe my halfway through my senior year, I started doing that really bad decision. That's that slippery slope that I fought for the next, I don't know, 20, 30 years. So yeah, it would have been, it would have been working in the real world. Cause like braids were unacceptable. Natural hairstyles is unacceptable. How did you know, how did you know all that stuff was unacceptable? I think I got told by like friends and family, you know, you can't go to a job interview like that. If you want to get a job, you have to look like this, what they would call professional. And it's funny. Cause you know, I, I Googled before this, I Googled professional hairstyles for women. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, it's all very white girl. And then I Googled unprofessional hairstyles for women and it's all Afros, braids. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's not surprising. (laughs) This is 2020. I mean, I do, what I find interesting is that, I mean, obviously I, in the ether, I don't know where I picked it up, you know, but the idea is like in an interview, have my hair back. Which makes me think that braids would be great to have, you know, to have yeah. in an interview because don't have your hair all in your face you know, in during an interview. But braids show ethnicity. Yeah, that and I think if you had braids, it'd be fine. If you had like had two cornrows or had your hair in a French braid in the oh, back, I, I think actually, it'd be fine. I don't. I don't think so. It it depends. Like it might be okay if I was going to go try to be a barista. But I don't think it would be okay. I mean, you have to understand in some big corporate law firms, really, I would say until, I would say it probably still happens, but at least until last year, they would say that they would prefer female candidates to wear skirts, like skirt suits rather than pantsuits. So no, you, you could not wear cornrows to, like, I could not wear two cornrows to a job interview as a lawyer. No. Okay, fair enough. Even now, with for those listeners, I I, I run the moot court program uh, with another professor, and you know we always talk like, do we have our students who have piercings and dyed hair, like pink hair? Do we do we allow them to go into competition with those things? And the answer is no. Even though we're both like, you can do whatever you like. I'm very pro do all that. Uh, I'm going to go blue with my hair at some point in the future. But the thing is, when you go to court, you have to be a vehicle for the words. And what I tell everybody is like, it's a costume. So it's not about your personal expression. It's about, it's your client's message and you need to be not distracting the bench. And so you have to be as neutral as possible. But I think the problem that gets with ethnicity is that neutral becomes white instead of um, no, like for a black woman, neutral can be braids. Is is when we think about beauty. I mean, obviously, I have a very waspy ideal of beauty, and I have struggled this my whole life. So it has nothing. So even in the concept, I I feel like I can relate. It's not as extreme because I've never had to adapt. Like it's just my own esteem or my confidence, and I'm a 
pretty confident person. But the idea is my beauty ideal is still very thin. If I could have long legs, it could be long legs. Um, I love my hair. That's I yeah, love your hair is amazing. So, I mean, all that is fine, but I've always sort of said, you know, they're like, if you could, I was like, if I would die and come back as another person, like I want to come back, I want to be a scholar, but I would come back as a tap dancing scholar who looked like Iman, you know, David Bowie's wife. Oh, like that's, yeah. I was like, she's my beauty ideal because still it's the body rather than color, it, like over color, over hair color, over be It's like, I just love that look. I love that rail thin look. And I, I have boobs. It's even at my thinnest, I'm not going to look like that. And I'm so glad that people are still looking at people like Serena Williams and Beyonce and JLo, you know, and looking at that is, that is beautiful. It's, it's definitely not my generation of, of beauty at all. Um, Beyonce is my beauty ideal. Yeah. She's a rock. She's amazing. I would want to be smarter. <laughs> okay. We and- lost all our listeners because you <laughs> dissed Beyonce. But uh, anyway, go ahead. My beauty idea. (laughs) Just there's certain things. Oh, maybe, you know what? Actually, you're right because she probably is brilliant. Look how far she's come. But there's just certain things that she does that she, you know, I I don't approve of everything. I mean, I love her and I love her music. I work out to the Homecoming album pretty much three times a week, right? It's my hype music. When I'm competing, I listen to her and Lizzo. And that's what gets me hype enough to do whatever it is I got to do. Right. So I love her, but there are things about the way she lives her life that make me uncomfortable. And yeah. Well, I'm sure that's like everybody. Sure. But I mean, that's God, that could be a whole nother conversation is what do we do when we enjoy something um, from an artist, but we don't agree with their politics or their choices. Like how, how through and through do we need to be? I, I think we should that's a whole that. other episode, isn't we it? We should add that to our list because that's an important one. If I could mix Beyonce with Michelle Obama, mm. because even Michelle Obama is quite beautiful to me. She's so elegant the way she carries herself. She actually physically is qu- quite beautiful as well. The way, you know, her body structure, actually, you know what? Screw Beyonce. Michelle Obama's my beauty ideal. <laughs> She's everything. She got everything I want. That's 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 it. Michelle I, Obama, I love you. It's so <laughs> funny. So if I had to like if we were just saying like who would be my beauty ideal like like in all in the essence of it for me I think it would be Gloria Steinem. Oh so yeah. I, I would have, you know, to be able to wear that long hair, you know, when she was young to be that smart and look yeah. that good in an outfit and to carry yourself with such confidence. But what I'm hearing with both of us, and I think we're a little evolved because both of us are really talking about a confidence. Yeah. Confidence and smarts, like more than like, Oh, like I want a thin nose. I want yeah. this kind of thing. And, and I think what we can sort of say to, any younger people who are listening is this is the aim, like to get here by, you know, get here earlier than I did. Like I got yeah. to this, I got to this concept, I think somewhere in my forties, but I mean, is early, if you can get here by 18 to see like confidence is beauty and not in skin color, no shape, lip shape, yeah. you know, long legs or not. I, I think that's, that's a pretty amazing place to be. 
Like, what about the white woman who wears braids? If the next time we do this, because everybody, we do this on Zoom, so we're looking at each other. Like, <laughs> so, and I like come and I say, oh, I got my hair done and I had braids. I would be upset, especially now, especially now. So, you know, this is one of my new things is that I'm calling out yeah. misappropriation. And, and you and I have discussed this when we did the art salon, right. remember? And, and I had all of these horrible fashion faux pas with misappropriation and braids and dreadlocks were one of them. Dreadlocks being different because dreadlocks is part of of, of a very part of a a cultural thing with Jamaicans and it's it's part of their religious experience, you know, around um, that religion. But braids, white women never wore them. This was something that um, black women had to do in order to manage their hair, especially once they came over here and they were slaves, you know. What bothers me about white women uh, wearing braids is that when a white woman wears braids, it's seen as revolutionary. It's seen as amazing. It's seen as like, oh my God, she's being so fashion forward. But I wear braids, I'm seen as ghetto. That's where the problem is. If, if it were that I'm revolutionary and amazing as well when I wear braids, then I'd be fine with you guys wearing braids. But when if you're going to wear them and it's fantastic and I'm going to wear them and it's not, then you guys need to stop because it started with me and it should end with me. I get that. And so I get that. So then what happens? And so this is an interesting, so this is interesting. My sister goes to St. Martin almost once a year in February. And she takes, she's one of those white women that gets her hair braided on the beach. She doesn't, but Mia, Mia, her daughter does. She shouldn't allow that. All right. (laughs) I mean, the, the women, uh, to be fair though, the women who are doing the braiding on the beach need the money, right? The money. And that's fine. If you want to do it and you're on holidays, don't Instagram it and make it seem like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, if you want to, if you want to support these women, get your hair braided, that's fine. Just don't get up on your social media and pretend like you're some kind of amazing person because you got your hair braided. That's, that's the thing, you know, just don't show anybody. (laughs) You supported Um, that woman. That was wonderful. She did your hair. Maybe you, maybe you can Instagram that moment, but just. I just, yeah, I don't know. Well, I what about, could Candace use it as an opportunity to have a discussion with Mia? Because Mia's 11 yeah. and has been doing this every year since she was six. She has no concept of, and it's, it's beautiful when you see young people have no concept, right? They just think it's pretty and they want to do it. And they ha- it, race hasn't imprinted on her yet in a, in a, in that way, in that way, it's, it's certainly imprinted on several other ways. Yeah. Uh, and to have that innocence of childhood, I, 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 I feel, I know, but, but this is where it starts. This right. is where it starts. This is where this misappropriate, this is where this thing of, well, they do it so I can do it starts, right? Like, you know, black people can't have anything of our own. We just can't because everything we do gets stolen right? Because it's cool. And it starts at that young age of, well, my black, that black girl did it. And I thought it was fly. So I'm going to do it. And I'm going to start using those words and I'm going to start doing this and I'm going to start. And you know, it just, it starts then. So if you nip it in the bud at the very beginning, that's fine. You just need to say, look, this is a cultural thing that black people do. And you know, it is not right for us to constantly steal from their culture. It's just not right. We have, there's gotta be a line that we draw. 
And it, and, and if we don't start it early, then by the time they're 40, I get these messages from people when I'm, when I do that, I did that video. I don't know if you saw this video about misappropriation of black vernacular. Right. And then I started getting messages from my white friends, but, but it, um, I see people saying shoddy and things on videos and on in movies and stuff. So I, I thought it was okay. So if someone said the N word, do you think it's okay? No, but it's not. It's the same thing. Just because we say it doesn't mean you can say it. Stop thinking with your white everyday mentality that you are the best and can do whatever you want just because you're white. That is where I draw the line. I get really angry. You cannot have everything. You have everything already. We can have our language. We can have our music. We can have our braids. We can have the way we dance. We can have our TikToks. Why must you steal everything? And then not only do you steal it, when we then do it, then when we're doing it, it's bad. But when you're doing it, it's great. Yeah. So let's. let's Wow. We got there. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, I mean, but here's the thing. I mean, that's what I, that's what I love. And I think that's what, no, we got to the place where it's, I'm listening to this and I was like, no, I, I totally get it. It's a hard listen to, you know, because I, while you were saying all that, I was like, I I agree. I agree. I agree. But there was always a, but there was like, but let me in thinking or in unpacking that. Yes. Two questions. One. And I think it's not that white people just want everything and that we're taking everything. I do think it's more insidious than that because that might've been how it started. Yes. That's how it started. But where it is now is I do think, and this is why, you know, you see so much uh, social media posting on how progressive white people can be the worst white people. And (laughs) I think for me, it feels like I, I think a lot of us are still clinging Uh, to a very simplistic ideal of we're going to live in a post-racial society or we're going to live in a colorblind, this concept of colorblind. So the idea is I can hear people saying to you, and it's not me, I'm just saying this is what I see as response is, but we're never going to be a better society unless we can share all of it. And no, that's not true. (laughs) Right. And that's the thing where everybody gets uncomfortable. It is. I can still respect you and love you and you don't have to call me shorty or use my vernacular. Right. And I I said in my video that I'm not going to code switch anymore because I used to do that. I used to code switch. I would talk to you. Hi, you know, like I would sound in, 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 for lack of a better terms, like a white person is what, I mean, another microaggression that I would get all the time. Gosh, you talk like a white person, but I would just sound like normal. Right. And then when I'm around my friends um, that are black or my family members, my husband constantly telling me he doesn't even understand what I'm saying when I'm talking to my black family because I'm just like, I've code switched. I'm back now on that. You know what I mean? And I'm comfortable just being able to switch back and forth. But in this attempt to allow myself to be me everywhere, but you know, um, you can understand what I'm saying, right? If I, I speak, if I'm like, yeah, girl, you know this. And so you know what I'm saying, but you don't have to say it back to me, right? right. That's like as if I was speaking Spanish to you, you understood Spanish, but you ne- meant not necessarily wanted to speak it back to me because it's not your native language. 
But I would like, that's the thing though. I would speak Spanish back to you because I would consider that polite. So there is a difference. I guess. But I wouldn't speak to you. But here's the thing. It's not different language. I think the point you want to make is if somebody speaks to me with a Southern accent, I'm not going to speak back to them in a Southern accent. Exactly. Oh, yes. That's the better better analogy. That's the, that's the analogy. You know, there are going to be idiosms in Southern dialect that I'm, you know, and here's the thing though, people do steal from one another. I mean, this is where we could have a linguist on and a linguist would say language is fluid and language changes all the time and things are co-opted. That's the nature of it. So I do think there is a construct and I am okay with this. And I think this is it is that we have to say, well, of course, language does have that. It's fluid and it evolves. And people do take sayings, you know, even let's surfer, surfer language, gnarly. You know, yeah. I don't know when that was just surfer language. And then when it spread across the world. So like I knew it in New Jersey and was <laughs> using the word gnarly at some point. Or y'all. Think, right. So the idea is like, why would then the a black originated term not be okay. And here's where I think the thing is, it just has to be right now. And I, and I think that has to, people have to get okay with that. Yeah. And then, so then my question to you is because I do think there's a falsity. Like I think that, and I fight with this, I'm, you know, I'm a writing professor. So I'm constantly trying to talk to students about formality in their writing and know your audience. And you, I always sort of joke with students, like for, for legal writing, you need to sort of write with your top hat on. I was like, imagine you're writing Downton Abbey, <laughs> you know, because you can't even use contractions in legal writing. Yeah. So like, that's how formal it is. I said, but that doesn't mean you do that in your, in your everyday language, like you, you adopt, but language also evolves. 10 years ago, it was considered uh, grammatically incorrect to start a sentence with and, mm-hmm. and now it's breaking a rule that's very cool. And it's finally accepted in legal, like legal writing, but we're always the last legal writing last to doctors. Yeah. But the concept is language is the same for everything. So the argument against why can't we co-opt your language is because language, that's how language has evolved. Mm -hmm. But I also agree that you have nothing of your own and we don't honor all that we've taken. And even when you think about blues and rock and roll, like when I go, that's the easiest thing, right? Blues, it's small, Elvis, huge. Did you see Justin Bieber admitted that he has is completely inspired by black music. No, but that wouldn't surprise me. Lots of people say that, right? Yeah, I mean, doesn't no, they don't Elvis actually say that. it. El- did Elvis say it? Did he yeah, I think Elvis. It? I think Elvis. I know that I was most impressed by Justin Bieber, who I'm never impressed by, saying, like outwardly saying it and saying that he was inspired by it, his dance, his music, everything that he, you know, he's fed by the black community and that he needs to do more. It's true, but I think Eminem said, I don't think the musicians are the ones who don't say they're influenced by it. I still will put it on the listeners who are clueless, right? Yeah. Like, isn't that where it matters? And because then 
They're like, I like Elvis, but I'm not going to buy blues. I'm not going to buy black musicians because we have Elvis. Like it's still, it's on the receiver. I, I, I don't, you're right. I'm not giving Justin Bieber any credit. He's not the first (laughs) white musician out there to say like, thank you so much for my influences. I mean, the Rolling Stones talked about how they, they totally relied on American blues um, when they were coming up with their sound. I just think we have to, we have, in order to have the reckoning where, you know, we change a 400 year history, there needs to be some work. White people actually need to put in the work. And part of the work is respecting new boundaries that might be slightly false boundaries mm-hmm. in order to, to maintain it. And that's, and I think that's important. What about the white woman who also has the beauty ideal of Beyonce? Like, so does she perm, does that white woman, what if she perms her hair to be really big, like Beyonce wears it sometimes? Does that Mm. matter? Or is that because white hair can do that? White hair can do that. You know, white hair can do that. If she wants to perm her hair and like frizz it out and get it horrible, Good on you. Um, but you know, like that, that to see, so thinking Beyonce is beautiful and wanting to look like her is not the same as putting on blackface and, and putting on a wig and then, and, you know, and putting on a fake ass, you know what I mean? Like that's where those are the, those are the little things. But if you think Beyonce is beautiful and you decide to wear your hair naturally and stop ironing it and you decide to have, and, and to, to wear your natural glow because Beyonce brought that out in you, then, Hey, I'm all for that. Right. right? What about, all right. So let's, so again, on the beauty and the butt, let's talk about that. Like, so that's also, (laughs) I'm like, when I'm like at my thinnest, when I look like I could tip over, like everybody, I was like, I look, they're like, you look like a skeleton. I was like, yes, I'm beautiful. <laughs> but I, I am aware that that's a sick, I'm sick in the head. But it seems like having a booty is like, that is what's um, um, amazing. Like everybody wants one. And that's as much in brown people as much as it is black people. And yeah, I, that's definitely and, crossed over. And the idea is that isn't that kind of, that seems like so body positive that I would kind of want that for white women, even if it's not because I'm not really sure. I guess I'm just I'm you know I this is where I get confused because I just remember our friend Ashley, my former student. Mm-hmm. She would always say, "Oh, you know." you know, Oh, professor D like, you know, I like what you, when you're, when you're, when you have a little thickness, you know? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would be like, you're just trying to make me feel better. Cause I'm feeling pudgy, but no, I think she was, she just was like, no, like now you fit a different beauty ideal and you look great this way. And I was like, yeah, I don't see it at all. But I do think it would be healthier if I could reframe the way she saw me. Yes. Um, and I don't think oh, that's appropriate. That's, no, that's just part of self-acceptance, Alex. <laughs> 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 that's just self-acceptance, <laughs> you know? <laughs> All right. So now these conversations are going to be therapy for Alexandra. Because you are quite beautiful just the way you are. You just have to 
to well i know but that's what i want so i'm still sort of like i just think we all need to be body positive and sort of be going back and thinking about confidence but in thinking about how like we should be closing up right about now but like what (laughs) how would you tell like in thinking about a future and it might be a really distant future. I'm not talking about even in our lifetimes where maybe some of these, where we could, we'll never be, I don't think we should be colorblind. I think we should evolve to not have to be colorblind. Yes, definitely. Um, that but should, to be able just, to be yeah. in a place where sharing cultural attributes isn't seen as appropriation and is seen as beautiful. So is let's put it this way. Will there ever be a time where let's say you're in an Italian country. I'm coming up with this on the fly. So let's, <laughs> and you know, I love Italy with all my heart. Okay. So let's say, but let's say we're, you know, there's an Italian in Italy who sees like a Spanish trend that's happening in Spain and totally uses it. Now, I, and I guess I, I don't really know what the cultural distinctions are, but the thing is, it's like it, they can appropriate that stuff. That's just like trends traveling in time. Yeah. When will there come a time where across this divide, it can be just trends moving back and forth? Do you ever envision a time when that could happen? No. Like I would never feel comfortable wearing an Indian headdress or Native American, excuse me, Native American headdress. I'd, I have three saris in my closet, right? Because I love saris. I will never feel comfortable wearing one, right? Because I don't want to take over their culture, but I love them. I have them just because I love them, I right? It. You know what I mean? Like I will never feel comfortable wearing uh, a proper Japanese robe, even though God knows I love kimonos so much. Like that's my go to, but I would never just, there's just certain things that that's part of their culture and I love them. And I, I, but I respect that this is part of their culture. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to adopt that. Right. And I'm respecting that, but I'm still loving it. Does, does that make sense? And I feel like we should have that for black people as well. I love braids or I love this. And, and I might even own, I don't know, God, what could you like something, but I won't, I won't go outside. Well, no, I get that. Like, so when I'm in Malawi working at Jacaranda, what's interesting is that the fabrics there in, in Malawi are absolutely beautiful. And I always buy fabrics and I see a lot of young volunteers having dresses made from the fabrics and wearing skirts and dresses. And they wear them in Malawi, which actually feels appropriate because it doesn't feel racial there. It feels like I am actually showing deference to this society and this is great. But I always do think, and these are never American people, they're always European volunteers, but it, and it's me and mostly European volunteers. And they go back to Germany or they go back to wherever they wearing the skirts because I've never had an outfit made because I was like, I would I would feel so uncomfortable. Like I was completely appropriating the, the garments because, you know, you do, you look at them, not all of them signify that you could tell right away African, but there are enough of them 
that you could look at it. And if you're schooled in fashion, and I'm barely schooled in fashion, and I would recognize it as a pan-African fabric of some kind. And it would make me uncomfortable to wear it and wear there are certain kinds of beautiful dresses that are, that totally fit the body and they skim the body all the way down. And they're usually, they're um, Malawian women or modest. And so uh, not due to any religious significance necessarily, but that's just how appropriate women dress. You know, they're lower than the knees. They might come down to the, the sleeves. They're usually the shoulders are covered and beautiful dresses that I would love to wear, but it's just, I was like, no, like I, I, maybe I could do this here, but I'll never be able to wear it in the States. And I, and I respect that because it's just, it's, it feels disrespectful and I go with my gut, but when that's it, yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. But then we got to train everybody's gut. You know what I mean? Like everybody has to have that same gut feeling. And I just think some people are clueless and that's what I find interesting that we need to sort of talk through. And I, and I think your, your rule is a good one. I, I, the only thing I was thinking about was, and we get back to, you know, my niece on the beach and that woman who's working, who needs the money. Um, you know, but I think your rule is like, you can do it, know that it's fun. And I do think there might be a duty on the parent to Mm -hmm. educate. This is a moment. Now we're at a teaching moment right? Exactly. Like that becomes a teaching moment of awareness. And it's not something that you go around bragging about or, 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 or thinking it is. You're very aware what you're doing. And that might be an interesting way to share culture because yeah. then you know you're sharing. Right. You know, it's like, it's sort of like, I know I'm sharing or taking part in this culture and I'm honoring it and not thinking, oh, look at me, like I'm the unique one. And I think right. that can be an interesting way to sort of help bridge the gap. Yes. You know, that's a great way, right? If she, if she learns early enough, it would have been great if she'd learned at six, but that's fine. It's now she's 11. That's fine. If she learns now, that's great. And she doesn't take those braids away out of St. Martin. Right. I mean, Um, and she's still helping this, 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 uh, person, you know, everything is fine. It's just, but, and she's respecting the culture. She's having fun on vacation. Right. You know what I mean? It's just, it, that's a, a whole win situation right there. I think so. Well, I think with that, we're going to end our conversation. Till next week. Till next week. All right. Hope you'll join us next week for a discussion on Karenism. Find us at womenbridgingthegap.com and check out our show notes below for other ways to talk with us. Music.